Book One, Part Three of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book One, Part Three, May thirtieth, eighteen sixty two. May 30th, Greenwell. After all our trials and tribulations, here we are at last, and no limbs lost. How many weeks ago was it since I wrote here? It seems very long after all these events. Let me try to recall them. Wednesday the 28th, a day to be forever remembered, as luck would have it, we rose very early and had breakfast sooner than usual, it would seem for the express design of becoming famished before dinner. I picked up some of my letters and papers and set them where I could find them whenever we were ready to go to Greenwell, burning a pile of trash and leaving a quantity equally worthless, which were of no value even to myself except from association. I was packing up my travelling desk with all Harry's little articles that were left to me and other things, and I was saying to myself that my affairs were in such confusion that if obliged to run unexpectedly I would not know what to save, when I heard Lily's voice downstairs crying as she ran in, she had been out shopping, Mr. Castle has killed a Federal officer on a ship, and they are going to shell— Bang! went a cannon at the word, and that was all our warning. Mother had just come in and was lying down, but sprang to her feet and added her screams to the general confusion. Miriam, who had been searching the libraries, ran up to quiet her. Lily gathered her children, crying hysterically all the time, and ran to the front door with them as they were. Lucy saved the baby, naked as she took her from her bath, only throwing a quilt over her. I bethought me of my running-bag, which I had used on a former case, and in a moment my few precious articles were secured under my hoops, and with a sunbonnet on I stood ready for anything. The firing still continued. They must have fired half a dozen times before we could coax mother off. What awful screams! I had hoped never to hear them again after Harry died. Charlie had gone to Greenwell before daybreak to prepare the house, so we four women, with all those children and servants, were left to save ourselves. I did not forget my poor little Jimmy. I caught up his cage and ran down. Just at this moment mother recovered enough to insist on saving father's papers, which was impossible, as she had not an idea of where the important ones were. I heard Miriam plead, argue, insist, command her to run. Lily shriek and cry she should go, the children screaming within, women running by without, crying and moaning, but I could not join in. I was going I knew not where. It was impossible to take my bird, for even if I could carry him he would starve. So I took him out of his cage, kissed his little yellow head, and tossed him up. He gave one feeble little chirp as if to ascertain where to go, and then for the first and last time I cried, laying my head against the gatepost, and with my eyes too dim to see him. Oh, how it hurt me to lose my little bird, one Jimmy had given me too. But the next minute we were all off in safety. 
A square from home I discovered that boy shoes were not the most comfortable things to run in, so I ran back, in spite of cannonading, entreaties, etc., to get another pair. I got home, found an old pair that were by no means respectable, which I seized without hesitation, and, being perfectly at ease, thought it would be so nice to save at least Miriam's and my toothbrushes, so slipped them in my corsets. These in, of course we must have a comb, that was added. Then how could we stand the sun without starch to cool our faces? This included the powder bag. Then I must save that beautiful lace collar, and my hair was tumbling down, so in went the tucking comb and hairpins with the rest, until, if there had been anyone to speculate, they would have wondered a long while at the singular appearance of a girl who is considered as very slight, usually. By this time Miriam, alarmed for me, returned to find me, though urged by Dr. Castleton not to risk her life by attempting it, and we started off together. We had hardly gone a square when we decided to return a second time and get at least a few articles for the children and ourselves, who had nothing except what we happened to have on when the shelling commenced. She picked up any little things and threw them to me, while I filled a pillowcase jerked from the bed and placed my powder and brushes in it with the rest. Before we could leave, Mother, alarmed for us both, came to find us with Tish. Note, Tish was Mrs. Morgan's maid. All this time they had been shelling, but there was quite a lull when she got there, and she commenced picking up Father's papers, vowing all the time she would not leave. Every argument we could use was of no avail, and we were desperate as to what course to pursue, when the shelling recommenced in a few minutes. Then Mother recommenced her screaming, and was ready to fly anywhere, and, holding her box of papers, with a faint idea of saving something, she picked up two dirty underskirts and an old cloak. By dint of Miriam's vehement appeals, aided by a great deal of pulling, we got her down to the back door. We had given our pillowcase to Tish, who added another bundle and all our silver to it, and had already departed. As we stood in the door, four or five shells sailed over our heads at the same time, seeming to make a perfect corkscrew of the air, for it sounded as though it went in circles. Miriam cried, "'Never mind the door!' Mother screamed anew, and I stayed behind to lock the door, with this new music in my ears. We reached the back gate, that was on the street, when another shell passed us, and Miriam jumped behind the fence for protection. We had only gone half a square when Dr. Castleton begged us to take another street, as they were firing up that one. We took his advice, but found our new street worse than the old, for the shells seemed to whistle their strange songs with redoubled vigor. The height of my ambition was now attained. I had heard Jimmy laugh about the singular sensation produced by the rifled balls spinning around one's head and here I heard the same peculiar sound, ran the same risk, and was equal to the rest of the boys, for was I not in the midst of flying shells, in the middle of a bombardment? I think I was rather proud of it. We were alone on the road, all had run away before, so I thought it was for our special entertainment, this little affair. 
I cannot remember how long it lasted. I'm positive that the clock struck ten before I left home, but I had been up so long I know not what time it began, though I was told it was between eight and nine. We passed the graveyard, we did not even stop, and about a mile and a half from home, when Mother was perfectly exhausted with fatigue and unable to proceed farther, we met a gentleman in a buggy who kindly took charge of her and our bundles. We could have walked miles beyond then, for as soon as she was safe we felt as though a load had been removed from our shoulders, and after exhorting her not to be uneasy about us, and reminding her we had a pistol and a dagger, I had secured a for-true one the day before, fortunately, she drove off and we trudged on alone, the only people in sight on foot, though occasionally carriages and buggies would pass going towards town. One party of gentlemen put their heads out, and one said, "'There are Judge Morgan's daughters sitting by the road.' But I observe he did not offer them the slightest assistance. However, others were very kind. One I never heard of had volunteered to go for us and bring us to mother when she was uneasy about our staying so long when we went home to get clothes.' We heard him ring and knock, but thinking it must be next door paid no attention, so he went back and mother came herself. We were two miles away when we sat down by the road to rest and have a laugh. Here were two women married and able to take care of themselves, flying for their lives and leaving two lorn girls alone on the road to protect each other. To be sure, neither could help us, and one was not able to walk, and the other had helpless children to save. But it was so funny when we talked about it, and thought how sorry both would be when they regained their reason. While we were yet resting, we saw a cart coming, and giving up all idea of our walking to Greenwell, called the people to stop. To our great delight, it proved to be a cart loaded with Mrs. Bruno's affairs, driven by two of her negroes, who kindly took us up with them on the top of their luggage. And we drove off in state, as much pleased at riding in that novel place as though we were accustomed to ride in wheelbarrows. Miriam was in a hollow between a flour-barrel and a mattress, and I at the end, astride, I am afraid, of a tremendous bundle, for my face was down the road and each foot resting very near the sides of the cart. I tried to make a better arrangement, though, after a while. These servants were good enough to lend us their umbrella, without which I am afraid we would have suffered severely, for the day was intensely warm. Three miles from town we began to overtake the fugitives. Hundreds of women and children were walking along, some bareheaded and in all costumes. Little girls of twelve and fourteen were wandering on alone. I called to one I knew and asked where her mother was. She didn't know. She would walk on until she found out. It seems her mother lost a nursing baby, too, which was not found until ten that night. White and black were all mixed together and were as confidential as though related. All called to us and asked where we were going, and many we knew laughed at us for riding on a cart, but as they had walked only five miles I imagined they would like even these poor accommodations if they were in their reach. The Negroes deserve the greatest praise for their conduct. Hundreds were walking with babies or bundles. 
asked them what they had saved, it was invariably, my mistress's clothes or silver or baby. Ask what they had for themselves, it was, bless your heart, honey, I was glad to get away with mistress's things. I didn't think about mine. It was a heart-rending scene. Women searching for their babies along the road where they had been lost, others sitting in the dust, crying and wringing their hands, for by this time we had not an idea but what Baton Rouge was either in ashes or being plundered, and we had saved nothing. I had one dress, Miriam too, but Tish had them, and we had lost her before we left home. Presently we came on a guerrilla camp. Men and horses were resting on each side of the road, some sick, some moving about carrying water to the women and children, and all looking like a monster barbecue, for as far as the eye could see through the woods was the same repetition of men and horses. They would ask for the news, and one, drunk with excitement or whiskey, informed us that it was our own fault if we had saved nothing. The people must have been blank fools not to have known trouble would come before long and that it was the fault of the men who were aware of it that the women were thus forced to fly in vain we pleaded that there was no warning no means of foreseeing this he cried you are ruined so am i and my brothers too and by blank there is nothing left but to die now and i'll die good i said but die fighting for us he waved his hand, black with powder, and shouted, "'That I will, after us!' That was the only swearing gorilla we met. The others seemed to have too much respect for us to talk loud. Lucy had met us before this. Early in the action Lily had sent her back to get some baby clothes, but a shell exploding within a few feet of her she took alarm and ran up another road for three miles, when she cut across the plantations and regained the Greenwell route. It is fortunate that, without consultation, the thought of running here should have seized us all. End of Book One, Part Three